Welcome to the Making a Runner podcast. I'm your host, Nick, a running specialist, biokineticist, and coach. And I'm your co-host, Davey, aka Davey on the Run. Through our shared knowledge and experience, we unpack the fascinating topic of running. We speak to coaches, athletes, subject matter experts, and everyday enthusiasts to help you improve your running. And ensure that you enjoy every step of the way, wherever the road or trail may take you. This is how runners are made. It's how runners are made, baby. Oh yeah. I think at the end of the day, if you're someone that is struggling with lower leg injuries, unless you've tried to to build up your kinetic chain, to to become more in tune with these muscles that we're talking about and build a better neural connection, then you're not someone that has tried everything. And there's there's a big difference, and I see this in my personal practice, between the performing a calf raise and performing a calf raise where you are aware of the role that your big toe joint plays and activating your arch and driving through your soleus. You know, like there's a massive difference. And I think the the little particulars are often lost in today's world of oh, there's a video, there's an exercise, this, I must do this, these top five exercises mm. for my running form. But the particulars is really where you'll win or you'll lose when it comes to these things. Martin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Nick and Leah. Sure. It's good to be here. We, we're very excited to chat with you today, Mart. Um, it's, it's our first uh, episode, so to speak, of the sub-segment of Deep Dive. And for those of you that don't know Martin, we did an episode with Martin in season one. This is all, this is last year now, episode 16. I highly recommend going to, to go listen to it, uh, where we chatted about pain and understanding pain. And you, if you go and listen to that, you, you'll know exactly why I've asked Martin to sit here with me today to chat to you guys about these deep particular issues uh, that we runners struggle with. But for those of you that don't know, Martin is a chiropractor. He's got an extensive knowledge and experience. He's, he's been in the industry for many, many years. Um, he is also a runner himself. He's done how many, how many marathons you were telling me? I don't know. You 30, said in the 30s. Maybe, and how many ultras? 25? About 20, 25. Yeah. So you've run. You've yeah, done a, a bit little, of running. A little bit. I think this qualifies you to be on the podcast. I've moved my small body some kilometers. <laughs> small body. Tell us. Mart, I know your size. How much do you weigh, Mart? Uh, 100. <laughs> 100 kilos. 100 kilos and you've completed comrades. Yeah, I have. So you've mo- you can yeah. move that body. Yeah, yeah, very slowly, but it gets from <laughs> point A to point B. Well, it goes without saying. I'm sure you've struggled with injuries in your in in your road to to running your marathons and your ultras. Yeah, there was a time where you know you, I think one gets on the road and become all enthusiastic after three months because, you know, you're starting to come into your own and your heart's beginning to catch up with your lungs. And after three months, you've got more red blood cells in your body, so your fitness is increasing, but your tendons and your bones haven't yeah. caught up with you yet. Yeah, and then become a little bit over-exuberant, too much mileage, boom, pick up a niggle. Yeah, that That's is an interesting uh, point that you bring up, and I think it's a nice way to sort of lead into the conversation now. now. But I also want to just say that, you know, Martin is, is part of my personal medical team if there, if there's something that i need that i'm not too sure of what's going on uh he is generally one of the first people that i, I sort of bring a touch point onto with because uh, 
he just looks at things from a different perspective. And sometimes you need that when, when especially for me, you know, uh, I work in, in health and I dive myself deeply into running and running injuries and how to deal with. So um, it's nice to have a different perspective. And Martin is always there to, to pick my brain, ask me the right questions. And I truly appreciate that And in the type of health professional that he is. And that is one of the main reasons why I want to have this conversation with you because I know you're going to do it justice. And the point that you started off with there is extremely interesting. And we, we have spoken about it on the pod before where when you start your running journey, your cardiovascular system progresses fairly quickly. Your, your physical system, your, your bones, your tendons, your joints, they don't really progress as fast. So as newbie runners, you end up picking up injuries early on because you just get super excited about how you're progressing, how much fitter can you get, what times can you run, but eventually your body brings you back to reality somehow. And for today, the real focus of the conversation is lower leg injuries. Um, why? Well, we did a poll a while back on Spotify. For the listeners that do listen on Spotify, you'll notice that we do leave polls out as we release each episode. So if you go and fill those those polls out, it actually helps us guide the, the conversation and guide the podcast. And this poll was about where are you guys experiencing your running injuries? And 37% of people replied with lower leg. So I thought that would be our starting point. Mats, what do you think of lower leg injuries? So the I went and looked in the literature a little bit this past weekend and when you told me that we were going to do this conversation and... Um, there's a number of different ways of of approaching this, and I thought, what would be a pragmatic approach for the the everyday runner out there who perhaps doesn't have a medical background to have a little bit of insight into a bit of self reflection with their body and how their body responds to what they're putting themselves through. And you know, the poll is quite significant. the The incidence of running injury is somewhere between 20 and 70%. So if you just take a, an average, you know, you, you were at one stage talking about one in two people being injured on the um, the 5K programs that you're mm. running at the club. You introduced some uh, conditioning programs and you just about eradicated those numbers. And the literature, if you take it at halfway, it's about 50% and your 37% poll indicative of the incidence of injury, yeah. So um, I think the reason why that perhaps exists is that first of all, running is very, very physically demanding on the body, and particularly when one wants to pursue longer distances, and not only but not only longer distances, which we can talk about volume, you know, how many steps you're taking, how much mileage you're putting away in a week or a month. But those people who are running fast over shorter distances are also vulnerable to injury and that's where pace comes into this, where the biomechanics of what happens when you are putting away high mileage is not the same as the biomechanics of running quickly. And you take somebody who falls into one of those two categories or even both, the individual presents with their own risk factors, be they biomechanical or they may have pre-existing comorbid conditions or um, structural deficits between sides, you know, like a structurally short leg on one side, for example, or they've had 
previous injuries and reconstruction of a knee and they're wanting to do fives and tens under normal circumstances without the running they would never have known that they had the potential of picking up these injuries and because of either exposure to the distance they're running or or the nice. speed that they're running in now there's an there's a chance for the risk factors to express themselves in the form of an injury and then somebody presents with something wrong or they now, present with pain essentially on a run now obviously on the data we would see different types of injuries based on whether it is volume dependent or quality or speed work dependent um how do you define those you know what 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 is defined as a lower leg injury so a low a low limb injury um would probably be the better term which would be classified as from the hip down to the foot down to the toe a leg is really from the knee to the foot so we would probably talk about lower limb injuries being uh, incorporating a greater diversity of of injuries um, interestingly the research that I, I found they specifically mention lower leg injuries related to other volume or speed um, stresses sure and it's quite interesting because not only can you classify the you know the the cause of injury but according to either of these these deficits, uh, either of these stresses, they they also manifest in particular locations, which is also quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. For example, a volume injury is more likely to manifest around the front and the outside of the knee, and um, a pace injury is more to affect the back of the leg and the undersurface of the foot. Sure. And that's related to biomechanical load yeah the biomechanical load of the different movements so i.e when you when you're running faster the the way that you run changes the muscle action and therefore makes you more susceptible to a certain injury and when you don't run so fast that that makes you susceptible to something else and i find that with the runners that are that i work with and coaches how do you get them to run well whether they're running slow or whether they're running fast because a lot of the time you know we we tell these runners that they need to spend a long time doing a lot of easier miles or easier running to just build up their aerobic engine but then you know we try and look at their running form and their running form is good when they're running fast but now when they're running slow it's not as efficient and they struggle and many runners struggle to run slower in fairness they they much prefer to run a little bit faster because they just find that form is a little bit more natural um obviously with with injuries in mind uh you mentioning different areas of the knee is there any differences in terms of the lower leg so say anterior shin posterior shin uh when it comes to the pacing uh, or or the mileage in these in this research that you've been looking at so interestingly for for pace uh the three big implicated injuries are of the Achilles tendon the calf muscle so the gastroxoleus muscle complex and the plantar fascia okay and on the um on the volume side the primary implicated knee injury is the around the knee patellofemoral pain. So how, how the kneecap articulates within the bottom of the femur and how it moves within its groove. The second most implicated is ITB friction syndrome. And then the mechanics of the tendon of the patella and how the patella moves. That's so interesting that you say that because 
as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, that must be it. Because, you know, when I see a runner coming through my doors and those those three, especially that you're talking about, patellofemoral pain syndrome, RTB friction, and a patella tendon issue, it often does relate to this runner just doing a whole bunch of mileage. It's not necessarily something that they're doing at a fast pace. It is often to do with the load. And I say that, you know, in my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Martin, but the knee is a very solid joint, you know, and I, I find that issues that present themselves at the knee are often related to, you know, the joints above and below because those joints have, are far more mobile in, in the different movement planes that they can work in. Um, does that have hold any truth? Massive, massive involvement. So when somebody presents with uh, an injury, I try and divide the the presentation into two. There's an intrinsic presentation that the patient's going to present with. So I, I need to try and understand how many of the risk factors do they have? Um, what what do they bring to this equation that intrinsically is going to help express an injury? And then extrinsic, extrinsically, it's looking at things like their shoe wear and their training program, their pedigree of running. What are they are they are they newbies or have they been doing this for a while and just coming back to it, etc. And the more of these factors that we can pin down and isolate as being unique to this person and things that can be implicated in producing an injury that we can change, the more likely they are they're going to get better. So when somebody has an injury, I think it's important for a person to understand that they are where they are now because of what they've been doing and what they bring into it. But as, as newbies, we're often so blinded to, to what we're actually doing to our body and the factors that implicate the outcome of the stresses that we put ourselves under that sometimes we don't see the wood for the trees. And then it's important to get help. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think this is a good point for us to bring up that, you know, this is a conversation between myself and Martin. Uh, we are both health professionals, but this is not medical advice, nor is it meant to replace your your real life health professional's advice. Um, also, if you're currently suffering from an injury, make sure to go to your nearest health professional to get them to take a look at it, and they will be able to advise you further on where you can go. Um, we, At the end of the day, we're all individuals and therefore require individual attention to recover from our issues. Um, but despite the disclosure there, um, I think, Mart, what you're saying, I find super interesting because that research that you're talking about, it helps so much understand what you can do to manage that particular condition. Because there, to me, you're telling me, okay, well, a speed or a pace injury, say plantar fascia, Achilles, calf issues, those are coming from the speed work, the fast work. Well, you know, downscale on that, you might be able to still do a little bit of running without necessarily aggravating yourself further. True can be said of, you know, the, the patellofemoral, the ITB, uh, the patella tendon, that obviously presents a different issue because now this runner might still want to run, but the problem is more volume-based. So there you know, okay, well, instead of running 40, 50 kilometers a week, I need to drop it down 10, 20 kilometers and see how it handles. And I'm sure that, you know, based on that particular research that you're looking at and where the incidences are coming from based on the pace or the volume that you're doing, you can directly sort of figure out how do I go about 
fixing my issue or sorting my issue out as a runner, never mind without seeing someone who can then guide you through that. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. And then within that as well, um, individuals uh, have to recognize that, especially when we're newbies and we, we're getting into this, uh, like I said, it can be difficult to see the wood for the trees, mm. but we can also become so obsessed about meeting my training program for the week and running attracts a certain type of personality. I think that it tends to be people who can be a little bit obsessive and perhaps obsess into the training and the running as a form of discipline, which does a myriad number of good things for the individual but it can also work against the individual. And for somebody to have the maturity to be okay with getting on a bike instead of chunking out 50Ks a week or getting into the pool, is sometimes they they really struggle with that. Yeah, but it, it is maturity, hey. And, and it comes down to also learning and learning from your past experiences I'm sure that's probably one of the easiest way that most runners will will know whether they've made a mistake in the past. And if they then go again and continue to make that same mistake, then yeah, sorry for you. But I think you should learn from your mistakes and and figure out how your body responds to these certain, you know, loads. And and that's what I sort of want to get into because for me, the lower leg, let's call it the lower leg for this particular case, the load that it takes, um, when you, when you are running, regardless of how much you're running, whether you're doing 20 or 150 kilometers a week, there's a certain load capacity that your body can handle. Now, the lower leg and the foot are taking a bunch of that load from every single step that we take. Now, does it get to a point where, you know, we, we get fatigued with that load and that's what causes these overuse injuries of the lower leg? Or is the truth to like also becoming road hardy? So say someone that's been running for three years can handle that load just because their body has gotten used to it versus someone that has been running for three months. So you're, you're correct in that. Um, somebody who uh, is in the process of, of acquiring the ability to take the pounding. So how much is this pounding? It's five to seven times your body weight that gets transferred up your leg every time you heel strike. And the the literature starts getting a little bit, uh, what's the word, conflicted with uh, whether you should be wearing hard shoes, whether you should be wearing soft shoes. Um, I think it tends to be a unique experience for the individual. This person has to figure out for them, do they need a really s soft shoe or do they do better with a firmer shoe, like a cumulus is a harder shoe than a nimbus mm. and so on. Um, the the bones and the tendons have to get thicker and they have to get used to the, the elastic fiber that makes up tendon has to get used to load transferability. If we think of how the Achilles stores energy and releases energy during pace running is one of the reasons why people get Achilles tendinopathy and uh, there are connective tissue genetic predispositions for um, a change in the ability of elastic tissue to resist load and handle tensile load. So my elastic capability might not be the same as yours. 
So my ability to transfer load over distance might not be as efficient as yours because my tendon is not as elastic as yours. Those are factors that have a role in, in how people respond to load. But with progressive exposure over time, people develop tendoperiosteal um, thickness and, and periosteal density and load transfer capability in tendon tissue and the stronger we are the more we can absorb that excess load with longer and longer distances so those those non-contractile tissues begin to fade or, or begin to fail when the muscle system cannot absorb much of that load and and we're talking about this load when it comes to tendons the tendons therefore adjust to your load over time and they're able to handle more um, is that the same case with bone so bone there's a there's a, a law in anatomy called wolf's law and wolf's law states that if you stress bone bone will get thicker but if you overstress bone bone weakens so there has to be this fine balance between how much is appropriate versus how much is going to be too much and a typical example of that is somebody who's developing a stress fracture. Mm. Sensitive, the, the bone cells that make bone, topping out on those bone cells that are destroying bone or, or removing old trabecular bone, um, therein lies an imbalance and that person's going to get a, a stress fracture. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about stress fractures later on because obviously that's one of... Um, one of the things that I often that I often see in runners, especially from a particular um, age group and and gender category, um, but I think the golden the golden question for me and for many runners that we've also been asked a few times on the polls that we put out and on our socials is what what pain is the type of pain that they should be trying to you know hold away from and what pain is the type of pain that they should be able to to push through or normal exercise pain so i think when people start running the the whole experience of what your body feels like afterwards what you feel like in training as you start pushing distance and as the weeks cumulatively improve um we start to develop a sense of what we feel like after a hard training session or after an easy training session so one of the things that I always ask somebody is, are you feeling the same thing on both sides of your body or is it in one limb only? And a warning flag is if they're only feeling something one-sided. And then I use a very simple grading system. So if someone's got a grade one injury, whatever that injury might be, if it's in, in the lower limb, if they can start the run with the injury, warm it up and it goes away, and it kind of comes back a little bit later, that's a grade one. A grade two injury is if the pain persists throughout a run. And a grade three injury is they can't run. There's too much pain. There's, and, and especially if it's a one-sided phenomenon, something's wrong. Mm, no. And that needs to be assessed. Now, how long can you go with a grade one injury <laughs> as, per your, well, as per your classification? 
uh, how long can one handle a grade one injury before it becomes a grade two injury? I mean, I know it's how long is a piece of string is yeah. the same answer. And I think that's where we can possibly get into some particular questions. But I, I personally, with my runners, I see that a lot, Marts. I tell, uh, and I told you off air, um, there's a lot of times where someone's now picked up a niggle, but when you actually chat to them, it's like, oh, I've actually been feeling it for, for two weeks, um, but I thought that it would just go away. I mean, how long can we expect something to be there before we should actually think ah, maybe that's not supposed to be there? So I think that <clears throat> is unique to each individual. And and remember, the injury itself is a factor of intrinsically what they bring to this equation, but also their volume and their pace. So if somebody starts feeling something that's not right, and, and it's easy to pick up something that's not right because it's going to be unilateral most of the time. If people will try a little bit of self-help, so they might, put an ice pack on something, get some Voltaren gel and rub some gel on or try some Arnica or foam roll. There's so much access to information now. People will invariably start to experiment a little bit and see if they can change things. And in the absence of an appropriate change, over whatever period of time that might be, you know, you can nurse something for months mm, mm. and, and by, by keeping your volume or your pace low if you're a bit more mature as a runner. Um, but if you've tried the the generic things and there's no change there is an indication to do something about it yeah but you you got to try something you can't expect everything to remain the same exactly. and nothing it's, to change it's the process that's brought you to this particular point so the the sum of everything you've done has now brought you to the point where your knee hurts <laughs> so something's got to yeah. change you've got to change something I'm sure you get it a few times in your practice where someone's like I've tried everything and you actually ask them what have you tried and they actually haven't done anything about it they've just been hoping that it gets better i'm gone for a massage or two over like six months do you remember i said just now about this running personality <laughs> yeah obsessive yeah. <laughs> but okay Martz, let's let's get stuck into a couple of the injuries i think we covered sort of like a, an idea of lower leg injuries and why they might occur now we have an idea of the differences between your pace type injuries as well as your your volume type injuries the first injury that i want to bring up that i think is sort of one of the more common ones that we often try to push to the back of our mind as runners. And I, I personally have struggled with this in the past. I know my wife has struggled with it in the past as well. And just a calf muscle strain. I think, you know, it's one of those very simple things that, you know, after a run, we often can feel a bit of tightness in the calf and we sort of put it to the back of our mind and we carry on going and then that tightness gets worse and it gets worse and eventually now you're left with the actual tear of the muscle where you now two three weeks and returning from a muscle tear in your calf is actually not as straightforward as possible so let's start off with a calf muscle strain why so i'm going to start with an anecdote quickly let's before go. we go there <laughs> I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2018, I spent three months with you doing rehab. Yep. And we were doing rehab because I tore my calf muscles running, <laughs> yes. comrades. I remember that now. And if you remember in the program, for three months, we never did a single calf exercise because there was everything else that we attended to. Yes. So there's an analogy that I use where um, if you take an iceberg where a third of the iceberg is really above water and there's two-thirds of the iceberg sitting under the water the reason why somebody picks up a niggle is because of what's underneath the iceberg so a calf strain is not a calf strain is not a calf strain 
a person needs to have their biomechanical um, their, their biomechanics evaluated. And and here's where things start getting a little bit complex. Um, there was work done at UCT at the Sports Art Institute where they they looked at whether they should take runners, newbie runners, novice runners, and coach them to run correctly versus whether they should just leave them alone and let them get on with their running style or whatever running style that is. And the the research shows that neither is better. So whether somebody just stays a rear foot striker or runs with arms that flap from left to right as opposed to up and down um, doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It doesn't matter on the injury incidents. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. That's a good question. <laughs> doesn't matter on performance because I no, would say no. It doesn't matter on performance. W- what they also showed was that when you do expose somebody to an altered uh, form of running, uh, they get injured. Mm. So if, if you want to move somebody from a rear foot for a mid foot strike to a four foot strike, they're going to get a calf and injury guaranteed. And if they can maintain their biomechanics improves, but we don't know if they're going to become better runners for it. Yeah, They may become more uh, conditioned if they're appropriately led into the process of becoming a four-foot striker because they will change their mechanical function to suit that with drills and, and conditioning-type exercises. Um, and, and it certainly would dial somebody's brain into better awareness of their form when they run and when they train. And there's value in that. Mm -hmm. But the calf, right? The calf is an extremely strong muscle. I mean, we talk about the calf, but it's actually, it's made up, it's a complex of muscles that make up the calf. Gastroc, soleus, the the main ones, plantaris is there as well. Uh, If it's such a strong muscle, why are we getting injured? And I know that we've spoken about the, the kinetic chain and myself, and, and yourself, we understand the kinetic chain, but how do we explain the kinetic chain to our listeners that perhaps are hearing that and they're like, "Oh well, I do my I do my lunges in the gym, you know, I do my I do my squats." What are you talking about, kinetic chain? So it's quite interesting. Um, first of all, the even though we all run and we all walk, we've got different strength capabilities in our calf muscles you get some people who say i I don't need to train my legs in the gym because i've got big legs already um the 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 presentation of somebody with with calf injuries falls within the category actually of of speed so the faster someone is running Mm. the more likely it is that they're going to pick up a posterior or a back leg issue It, it relates to the number of times that the muscle contracts um according to the pace so the faster you run the more times your leg is going to hit your foot's mm. going to hit the floor and more powerfully correct and, and how effective the load transfer has to take place to propel your body over your weight-bearing foot mm. and it's the energy that's derived uh and the spring action through the the bottom of the foot into the calf into the achilles and into the calf to propel the body forward that is an enormous mm. amount of load that's taking place through through those tissues. And sometimes calf muscles also picked up when there's a change in surface. So now somebody who's decided to run a, a park run on the trail, for example, 
is going to be subjecting those same tissues to a very different type of load as opposed to running on the road. And I'm sure shoe wear in this fact also matters quite a bit. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, yeah, because the way I see it is also the calf is is a strong muscle in relation to like the size of the muscle, the action that it does. It's designed to be able to launch us. But due to the muscle action, and I think it's important to mention in running, you know, when, we, when we're landing, that calf is essentially taking that ground reaction force and slowing us down, only to then store that energy and then launch us and forward. Propel us again. So it's, it's, it's going through a fast cycle of load absorption and then load and then and then capacity you know like create power creation um so i think that's probably one of the reasons why and then obviously you couple that with perhaps not an extremely efficient running gait although we know and i know we have you you've mentioned that the running gait isn't really affecting but would you say that you know someone that is picking up a niggle i understand the the principle of if you change someone's running gait they're going to potentially pick up a niggle from changing that running gait. But what if someone's already coming to you with a running, with, with a niggle that was potentially affected by a running gait? Mm. Would then, would there be any clinical evidence to look at trying to change in that case or rather bulletproofing the body in other ways? I think it would be appropriate to, first of all, figure out why the injury is there and, and look at... Um, the intrinsic stuff, the biomechanics of this individual, for example, uh, how strong are they in their stability function in their, their ankle and in their knee and their hip? Um, the calf muscle is balanced by the ability to lift the foot, but there's more than one mechanism to lift the foot. There's different muscle compartments that lift the foot. And if those um, components like the anterior tibialis and the posterior tibialis muscles are weak, there's going to be a, an overload in the gastroc from the get-go. Yeah. Um, so the, the ability of the foot to sustain load and for the ability of the foot to move through the gait cycle appropriately is also important. A, 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 a supinating foot is a rigid foot. So the, the amount of... So a foot that rolls outwards for, for lack of... Or, 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 or a, a foot that a, points a upwards, you talk. Yeah, so a high-arched foot. Consider yes. a high-arched foot would be a, a, a foot that stays in a supinated position for longer, if not pronating at all during the gait cycle, um, is going to predispose to a certain type of injury. A foot that is excessively pronating cannot store energy in it because the, the foot is lax. So the ability of the gastroc to take that load is now less mm. so th those are the factors that some of the factors that actually have to be to be looked at to determine why was the calf the failure point so it's almost like having to go look backwards and not look for the cause of a gastroc just go look what's there and that's not working the way it should but now we're talking about a long-term solution for these types of conditions for for a calf strain we gotta we gotta get the whole body working on the same page but now if you're a runner that's got a calf strain now let's let's put it down to a second grade in, in your categorization mm. where now they they're running with the pain the pain is there throughout the run perhaps it gets worse but they can manage it what would be your advice to that runner um so if, if somebody's got a grade two 
injury, I wouldn't let them run. They would have to change their sports, change the change the training rationale, and then do a deep dive and, and come up with a reason as to why they failed. Why has the car failed? Um, if if one wants to downgrade the injury, conditioning the calf is going to help because there's too much load being applied into that structure. It intrinsically cannot maintain its function. That's why the tissues failed. Um, so the capacity for the muscle to do work has to be improved, and there's strengthening that would take place yeah. for that. But it doesn't help to just do, you know, a plethora of calf raises <laughs> in the absence of figuring out why whatever predisposed to that car failing in the first place is not corrected. And it's, I mean, I've done an assessment on somebody where they had a labral tear of their shoulder on the opposite side of their body that predisposed them to a calf tear. <laughs> and, and that's the only thing I could find. We treated their shoulder and their cough got better. <laughs> sure. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all. There's not going to mm. be a generic solution to everybody's calf strain but i do think that when it comes to calf strains and that's from my personal experience i think early management is key um from my running experience you know in the last couple of training cycles i haven't had any calf issues but i know that the moment i'm i'm tinkering on the edge of overload for my personal capacity that will be the first little sign and my, my soleus and my lower left calf will start to get a little bit tight and then i know that i can manage it and in the early stages i mean if i just take two days off of running then third day i'm back without any calf issues if i'm like in a key week or i know that i want to try get some sessions in that's when it starts to get quite tricky and that's where you know your point of runners are being obsessive about their particular training you have to be able to sort of take a step back out of that training and realize that you know missing a day or two here is not going to affect my week but if I now start missing a week, it's going to start to affect my training. If I start to affect my month, then I'm, I'm, I may as yeah. well not get to my yeah. goal. So I personally believe that in these conditions, just being acutely aware of it early and taking some time off at that time and having patience with it is probably the best way to go about it. You know, there's more, there's, there's the generic things that can be done to manage the location of the cough ice, soft tissue, maybe foam rolling it if it works for some people. Um, there's the kinesthetic awareness that putting K-tape mm. provides might have generic value. The longer I've been practicing and the more patients that I see, the more I realize that the generic stuff actually doesn't help. <laughs> it has One has to be very prescriptive and... Do a deep dive for every patient to figure out what it is that is not working for them. Because, you know, people exist, you know, as single entities, but they exist in a family, they exist in a community, they exist in a society, and there's a myriad number of stresses that are on the individual. Um, that patient might not be getting enough sleep at night, and they're training hard, and there's biomechanically nothing wrong with them but because they're not recovering enough mm. and the calf is potentially exposed because of the speed that they're training at, so they get injured. Yeah, there's a lot to it, and that's why I think we, we're calling this the deep dive. <laughs> and that's, that's why we have a disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. I we did can't your fix ass you. and I did this, and it, I, I've now got a great tear yeah. of my calf. 
No, 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 no. Because it's that specific. But am I correct in saying that if left unmanaged for a prolonged period of time, this it, it can lead to other issues. And the next issue that I want to bring up, which I find can sometimes go hand in hand because it is part of the calf complex, is the Achilles tendon. This is an area that, I mean, we know lots of runners historically struggle with. Um, good to know that it's got to do a lot with the speed. Uh, but also I find that it's a tricky one to manage as a runner and for my runners because a lot of the time, you know, the runners can handle some some Achilles tenderness, tenderness. Or, some, or some Achilles awareness. Mm. But does that mean that they should be pulling away from running? Because as I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it, but tendons don't really react well or, or at all to rest. So the runner might take away a whole week of training and now they come back to running thinking they're going to be 100% fine, but they still got the same Achilles niggle. So yeah, the, the, the tendon tissue is more prone to degenerative processes than inflammatory processes. And as we get older, our tendon resilience changes. Even from 30 to 40 years of age, our tendon resilience changes. So the kind of training that we do and the involvement on, on, on bringing in a conditioning type training and perhaps dropping off on some of our mileage as we get older is, is tendon protecting. And some people have connective tissue genetics, as I alluded to previously, um, which predisposes them to perhaps weakening quicker or tendon thickness. The, the, the collagen fibrils that make up the tendon are perhaps not as thick, so they're predisposed to injury. Um, and also, if someone's been running for a long time, they, natu- they, they develop intrinsic resilience in those tissues because of the mileage. So somebody who gets to, you know, 40 years of age and decides they want to, you know, give, give a marathon a go is under significantly more potential for risk injury than somebody who's been running for 20 years and who's now at 40 still running marathons. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting that you mentioned that because I think, you know, we, we look at the Achilles as one of those common running injuries that you often hear about runners experiencing and putting themselves out of a training block or missing a marathon or missing the goal because of that Achilles issue. But it does have directly to do with what we've spoken about already in terms of your ability to handle that load. Mm-hmm. But in terms of now, say, let's let's give it a, an actual case scenario. Now, you are a runner that has been doing a decent amount of training for a couple of years. Um, let's say, you know, extrinsically, perhaps you've gone on to change your shoes throughout your running career and it's never really given you any issues. But now you, you're trying to, to, to push yourself to the limit. So what would you do to push yourself to the limit? Well, you perhaps increase your mileage, you start including a little bit of speed work and now you start to develop this, this Achilles tendon um, pain or discomfort. What are the first signs when it comes to Achilles tendon to sort of feel like, hey, perhaps... I'm starting to experience that because again, it's one of those those niggles that if you do something about early enough, it it perhaps won't progress to to that point where now you're having to run with pain all the time. So, Nick, uh, somebody who's experienced will start. Um, if it was bilateral, both sides, I would just tap off 
how much volume or how much speed speed work I'm doing because yeah. it's bilateral and symmetrical. But if it was a one-sided thing, the first thing that might start happening is they saw after a run and then they recover. And if they keep persisting, that ache starts persisting through the run. And and by that time, something must be done. So in the Achilles tendon, we divide it into the, the different locations, the muscular tenderness junction, the belly of the tendon, the terop- tender periosteal So junction. the muscular tenderness junction is right at the top where the, where the tendon joins the soleus. Then you're talking mid-tendon, and then you're talking where the tendon the joins t- onto the bone of your heel. Yeah, and the worst place to get it is in the belly of the tendon because that, that section takes the longest to repair. When somebody presents with a soft tissue injury, um, I always get a ultrasound, ultrasound scan. And the reason why I want to classify the injury is because that's going to give me an idea as to how long it's going to take for it to settle down. And within having an injury, we can't tell the difference between what's tear and what is a degenerative process taking place in a tendon. So clinically, the tendon can be sore, but it doesn't necessarily tell us what's there. And tears in tendon takes significantly longer to heal than tendinopathic change. What makes it even more interesting is there's some research to show that we develop tendinopathy as a course of aging. And sometimes our ultrasounds don't pick up the lesion or they pick up a lesion but the patient doesn't have pain <laughs> so it's it's a bit of murky waters mm. that we have to try and manage through. that's why every person is individual yeah it has to be taken on its merit <laughs> and for for tendons in particular and again relating to the achilles tendon um, how much consideration is there for eccentric load? Obviously, I know that that's one of those things that we sort of work on quite a bit. But over and above the eccentric load, as we've spoken about before, um, the kinetic chain activation, you know, getting to understand why is that tendon overloading to the point where it is constantly it getting irritated. Um, explain to us a little bit about the, the eccentric load on the tendon and how that allows it to essentially heal. So we know that eccentric in, in an eccentrically loading muscle uh, where the muscle fibers are lengthening, as the cross bridges across the muscle fiber reduce in number, the, the load stays the same, but the strength offered by the muscle is, is in a decreasing value relative to the constant load applied. That's why if I hold a heavy weight, and let my elbow straighten, my biceps is lengthening, but the load stays the same. Now, as the muscle fiber length reduces, that load force applied by the weight has to be absorbed by the tendon. And it's in that load absorption state that the tendon begins to repair. Now, when that load is applied progressively and carefully over time, in, in say, for example, a conditioning program, or rehab program, when that load is applied slowly over time, eventually what happens is fibroblasts, which are cells that are collagen producing, they begin to be called into the area of tendon damage and they begin to repair the tendon because there's a stress demand placed on the tendon. But the stress demand is not in excess to damage the tissue. 
And that's why RIA products have to be very progressively, slowly applied. When the, the fibroblasts migrate into there, they lay down tendon, and tendon gets thicker and stronger. That's just one theory. The other theory is called the donut theory. And in the donut theory, the mid-belly, the, the hole in the donut represents the tenderness, the tendon area of degenerative um, process. And instead of that tendon area filling with remanufactured collagen, it doesn't. But the surrounding donut, the surrounding tendon actually gets thicker and stronger. And then it begs the question, well, why does the pain go away when the person now has gone through three or six months of strength rehab? And the answer is that it's got to do with the threshold of the nerve endings in the in the um, fibers that are no longer firing because the tissue is now coping with the load. Sure, that's yeah, that's extremely that's interesting. What happens? And, and mm. It's an interesting question that you ask because again, pain is one of those things that why why is it painful and why was it painful and why is it not painful anymore? And that's often what we're dealing with as a runner is how painful was that run or how much did it hurt me? But if we now understand the Kelly's tendinopathy as as to what we're talking about, you know, you could be doing the right things, you could be loading it, you could be um, you know, putting it through its eccentric protocol, working on the rest of the kinetic chain. But now as a runner that is trying to do all those things and at the same time still build up towards a certain goal, how how much um, running load or let's say, you know, you take away the, the speed work, but how much volume do you think it's still acceptable to, to maintain in, in your training program without it necessarily impacting the eccentric work that you're doing negatively? So I think the patient has to be educated on that front so that they begin to recognize where that point is for themselves. So five different patients presenting with an Achilles tendinopathy are all going to be managed differently. So it's important for that patient to understand what they can do without paying the price for it. And if they have to pay a price, how much can they pay without necessarily causing more damage? Because, I mean, it can take a long time. Yeah, you can be in this for two years. Yeah. You know? Something else that can take a long time to heal is bone. Um, we alluded to it um, a little bit earlier, but, you know, tibial stress fractures, I think they, they are <laughs> quite a common uh, issue. And they I want to go in hand in hand with your typical shin splints, medial tibial stress syndrome that a lot of runners sort of, experience especially newbie runners runners getting into running runners that change shoe your heavier runners let's start off at the shin splints um what is shin splints can we can we define it a little bit so shin splints is like saying headache <laughs> or sciatica it's not a diagnosable term it's a more like an umbrella term and and inside shin splints shin splints just refers to pain in the lower leg but within shin splints, we've got a couple of subdivisions like, for example, stress fractures, medial tibial stress syndrome. Uh, you can get compartment syndrome, and then they affect different compartments in the legs. But essentially, when people talk about shin, shin splints, I think most people are actually referring to bone pain. And um, as ironic as it is, it's the, the one you really don't want, but it's also the easiest one to treat because there is no treatment. <laughs> The treatment is you stop running. What every runner wants to hear. You just stop running. How many weeks? 
tell me, Martin, I've so, got a race in a month. Can I, can I still do it? <laughs> well, what I do is I take the tibia and I divide it into thirds. And I bony palpate along each of those thirds of bone. And this is, <laughs> this is how you test for it. And when there is a pain response or wincing because of bone pain, which nobody can fake their way through, not even David Goggins, <laughs> <laughs> they're not allowed to run. They're not allowed to run. Otherwise, see, there's, there's, you, have to, you have to really stress bone over a long period of time to get a bone injury. Mm. And it takes time to develop a bone injury. And by the time somebody has got a sore tibia, they haven't been listening to their body. And they can develop a fracture out of that if the bone weakens significantly enough and they walk and you know bang their knee against a coffee table or bang their leg against a coffee table. They can break their bone. So when somebody is now presenting with marked tibial pain, which usually is in the mid-third of the tibia, if I can palpate their tibia along the length of the tibia after four weeks, they're allowed to start walking, not running. In the meantime, they can get on a bike, they can get into the pool, but there's no running allowed at all, nothing. And if after four weeks there's still pain on palpation, they have to wait another two weeks, and we keep checking in two-week intervals. It can take anything up to 10 to 12 weeks for bone pain to settle. And often, am I correct in saying that it won't show up on an X-ray? So we don't X-ray patients for that. Um, ultrasound is a very cheap um, musculoskeletal assessment which we can see tendoperiosteal bone reaction at the beginning sides of edema on the periosteum and that's very, very early. You have to have significant bone damage to see it on an x-ray. And to bring it back, because I know you said, you know, it's probably someone that hasn't been too in tune with their body or has been putting this pain at the back of their head and just sort of forgetting about it. Is there a consideration for someone that perhaps is struggling with what you mentioned, the medial tibial stress syndrome, um, that then, you know, they, f they think that that's what they're dealing with. And eventually, if left untreated, it it uh, starts to put extra stress onto that medial side of the tibia and eventually results in a stress fracture. Could yeah. the two go hand in hand? Definitely. And then, of course, they're going to persist in running, but every step you take hurts. And, and it takes all the pleasure out of running. It's mm. very, very sore. It's agony to run with that. And the, the longer they persist, the more it drives people to actually do something about it because it's debilitating. Eventually, walking hurts. And what role does the, the tibialis posterior muscle play in this, in this whole dilemma? So the, the posterior tib muscle is a muscle sitting in front of the calf at the back of the tibia. And I found it a very interesting little muscle <laughs> because... It's got, it works exactly the opposite to the anterior tib by virtue of its location and its anatomical uh, connections, but it does the same job. So it, it, it lifts the arch, but opposite in the contraction phase, mm -hmm. or, or, or I should say opposite in the movement phase of the foot. So concentrically, anterior tib will pick the arch up, but eccentrically, Posture tib holds the arch up. And 
I think that we have to have a stronger posterior tib than an anterior tib. And it's the usually the weakest muscle of the foot. It's bec- do you think it's got a lot to do because it is such a deep muscle uh, that people sort of struggle to to connect to it in a way? Like you cough, you can see if your calf's activating or not. Your mm. tib and the muscle in the front of your shin, you can see whether it's activating or not. But this muscle is so deep in there uh, that I often find in my rehab journey with my patients, it's, it's very difficult for them to actually connect to that muscle and feel that muscle working, even though you're doing strict tip post work they might take a couple of weeks to get themselves to actually feel the muscle work become aware of it become aware of it and this is something that i just want to point out to people is that oftentimes you know you the muscles that you're not aware of you're not necessarily going to feel working so now great you can do a hundred clams before you start to feel your glute burning doesn't mean that your glute is strong it probably means the latter it probably means that you're not very connected to it connected to it I think that shoe wear helps promote a weak posterior tib. Because if we wear shoes that have an arch in it, there's no need for the posterior tib to eccentrically control the the supination form into the pronation form during the gait cycle. Mm. So if we have an, a, a shoe with an arch in it and we are shoe bound, you know, for most of our weight bearing time, that is going to promote weakness of the posterior tib. I think that people who spend a lot of time without uh, shoes on you know especially kids when they play in the garden and climb trees and jump over rocks on the beach and all of this i think that they intrinsically develop better foot function because their muscles are working better so there's you know two sides of the same coin where perhaps going minimal is valuable but on the other hand running in a cushion shoe is also valuable for example i, I cannot go Minimal. I would never be able to go minimal in a, in a, as a runner. Um, I, <clears throat> because of my weight, I need to be in something a little bit more cushioned because of the ground reaction force. Interestingly, my youngest daughter has got uh, pest planus feet. And we brought her here to, to the podiatrist, to Nalfri, for, for assessment. And it was absolutely apparent that she needed uh, orthotics and there was a recommendation that we should actually get her into the pool as opposed to doing weight-bearing sport because her feet were so bad. She's now been in the gym for two years. She has formed her arches. She had pest planus feet. Pest planus feet do not recover when you rehab them. But because she's young and she's been lifting and weight-bearing in load situations in the gym, she's actually formed her arch. Her feet are stronger for it. So, um, so it can th- be done. It can be done. You've seen it firsthand. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mats, I, I agree with you in a way. There's definitely, and we've spoken about it before, there's many cases where an individual will benefit, I think, in the short term from an adjustment. Uh, but the long term, you know, it there has to be a way for you to be able to handle that load. Your body can handle that load it's it's about figuring out the right rhythm and also in terms of that pronation when when we're landing that's the foot falling in upon landing if you look at anybody there's a natural amount of pronation that happens that is what drives us onto a big toe that's what promotes us to move in the right direction but 
when we overpronate, we still don't have an understanding of what or, or, or a definition of what overpronation actually is, how much percentage is overpronation. Mm-hmm. I think it can get very blurred for people. I think at the end of the day, if you're someone that is struggling with lower leg injuries, unless you've tried to to build up your kinetic chain to to become more in tune with these muscles that we're talking about and build a better neural connection then you're not someone that has tried everything and there's there's a big difference and I see this in my personal practice between the performing a calf raise and performing a calf raise where you are aware of the role that your big toe joint plays and activating your arch and driving through your soleus you know like there's a massive difference and I think the the little particulars are often lost in today's world of oh, there's a video there's an exercise this I must do this these top five exercises mm. for my running form but the particulars is really where you'll win or you'll lose when it comes to these things I think that the attention to detail and the 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 movement the, the rehab type movement that has to stimulate the sport uh, that has to mimic the sport um, is is more valuable than just crunching out calf raises and you know trying to strengthen posture to doing plie exercises for example and i think that the the more dialed in somebody does to what they're trying to achieve the more valuable it's going to be and and that the, the mechanism behind that is that the the way the brain works with functional movement is not the same way the brain's going to work doing calf raises so a functional movement pattern is more valuable because it's going to be incorporating that same neuronal pool in the brain that works when you're on 35Ks and you've still got seven to go. And your form is failing. Correct. So as close to the event demand that we can achieve in training, the more effective our training is going to be. And interesting, the less training we have to do. The more effective it becomes. Yeah. Brilliant, Martin. I think, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. It's been super insightful and we've covered some some key topics, but we haven't covered a massive amount. You know, we've we've spoken about your calf strains, we've spoken about your Achilles tendinopathies, um, your medial tibial stress syndromes or your shin splints that people like to refer to in terms of any uh, sort of pain that you're getting in the anterior part of your leg, your tibial your tibial stress issues. Um, so I found it super insightful. I'm sure that a lot of the runners listening to this have found this super insightful. And I just want to thank you for your time today, for your patience in explaining all these things. And I look forward to having more of these deep dives with you. I look forward to that as well, Nick. I, I really enjoy the the level of, what's the word I'm thinking of, um, accountability that I have to have coming to talk here. Because there's a, an audience and the audience is educated and I, I hope that there's you know value in in what I have put forth and I want to just impress again that there's no one-size-fits-all it, it just doesn't work like that when I when I I've been preparing for another talk that I'm doing on um, on, on a pain syndrome and even the research on on this um, nerve pain that I'm doing um, highlights how prescriptive assessment must be because now we know how varied the neurochemistry in pain is so the 
50 different chemical reactions taking place in the spinal cord for this neuropathology <laughs> state is not the same as what's going to be in the next person and that ultimately is going to affect how, affect how they perceive their pain. And running running is, is, is very similar. That's why, you know, I, I look at some of the YouTube videos that are on available now you know i was i was looking at the cures for plantar fasciitis everybody's got a cure for plantar fasciitis i wish there was a cure for plantar fasciitis but there isn't there isn't a cure for plantar fasciitis you know everybody's got a spin on how this should be and how that should be but maybe that would work for five percent of the population of plantar fasciitis mm. but what about the other 95 percent of patients who are going to try then it's not going to work Look, the way I see it is a knowledgeable runner is going to be a runner that is going to be Running better for a prepared, long time. <laughs> better prepared to deal with these things, you know, yeah. just understanding what you can do, when you can do it and how you can do it. I think that's all that we can do in through this medium is provide yeah. that for our listeners mm. and, and give them as much information as we have available to us mm. to share with them. So I thank you again, and I'm sure it's going to be extremely insightful. Well, thanks for the opportunity again to come and join the podcast. I really enjoy chatting with, with you guys. <laughs> thanks, Mars. I'll chat soon. Man. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to another episode of Making a Runner. We hope you enjoyed it and found value in the show. Don't forget to rate and leave a review on your favorite streaming platform. And remember to share with your running buddies. Follow our journey on our socials and feel free to engage with us on all things running. We wish you a pleasant run wherever the road or trail may take you. Bye for now.